Hello and welcome to an emergency edition of the Slate Political Gap Fest. June 9th, 2023, the Trump is indicted again edition. I'm David Plotz in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. John is on TV right now because we're talking right after Jack Smith's little statement. And so John is not able to join us. But you and I will talk about the extraordinary events of the last day. Um, we taped a gap fest yesterday. And of course, uh, we anticipated that something would happen. And now that something has happened. And a reminder that we have a live show coming up this month, the end of this month, Wednesday, June 28th at 6th and I Historic Synagogue here in Washington, D.C. At 730, we are going to do a great live show. Uh, we have a special guest planned. We're not quite ready to announce it, but it's a great special guest. And you can get your tickets at slate.com slash live and Slate Plus members, you get a discount. So go get that discount and come cheap. And you can also stream it if you can't make it to D.C. There's streaming available so you can watch it live. Again, slate.com slash Live for our show on Wednesday, June 28th. Emily, Special Counsel Jack Smith unsealed the indictment of President Trump for his handling of classified documents and his attempt to withhold classified documents from the government when they were requested. And it's an indictment that is largely about how President Trump tried to withhold the documents. It's partly about his possession of the documents. And there's a whole bunch of charges, more than 30 of them. And some of those charges are about the documents themselves that he withheld when they were requested and that he hid. And a lot of it, a lot of the charges are also about the fact that when the US government came to him and demanded that he return these classified documents that were not allowed to be in his possession, he declined to do so. Uh, he said he was doing it, but then engaged in a conspiracy to withhold the documents, having his valet, Walt Nada, move these documents from one place to another, lying to his own lawyer about whether he had turned over the appropriate documents, and then only turning over a fraction of the documents uh, while holding back a ton of the other ones. And it's mostly that conspiracy to withhold documents when the federal government came calling for them that former President Trump is being charged with. Yeah, it's willful retention of national defense information and conspiracy to obstruct justice and then making false statements. And there's a smoking gun here, which we had gotten um, news reports of earlier, which that is that Trump was on a call with a couple people working on the biography or I guess the memoir of uh, his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and he was bragging about having classified information. He made it clear that he knew it was supposed to be a secret. He was telling them about it. And he was telling them to settle a score with General Milley. He wanted to show that it was General Milley's idea to attack Iran, not something he'd been pushing for. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but he claimed that's what the documents said. And in that exchange, which is caught on tape, it's clear that he knows exactly what he's got. He knows he's not supposed to be sharing it. 
And it also gives us a clear motive for what he was doing, which I've been wondering about this whole time. Like, why did he hold on to all of this stuff? And now that just seems much more understandable. Not only clear what he was doing, it's clear that he also knew that one of his defenses that that people have posited for him, that he that he had retroactively declassified everything, that he knew that it wasn't true. He admitted that he couldn't declassify things now that he was no longer president. And therefore, that is a defense of what he was doing that uh, was was not going to be a tenable defense. Yeah, it's really damning. And then there's another instance in which he told someone who was representing his political action committee that he had documents he knew were classified and he, um, you know, made moves to kind of share them. Less detail about that, but also evidence that he was showing people things that they weren't supposed to see and that he knew that's what he was doing. But what is amazing about this is it it is really overwhelmingly not the retention of the documents that he's being charged with. If 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 it turned out that he had just turned over everything when the government asked for it in the spring of 2022, if they if he'd just gone ahead and turned over the 100, 200, 300 plus documents, confidential, classified, uh, top secret documents that he had. It would be fine. They would have let it go. It still would have. There still would have been crimes that he committed. He still shouldn't have shown those documents. But it is clear that the reason he is in so much trouble right now is that he thought he could lie to prosecutors. He thought he could lie to his own attorney, and he thought he could lie to the FBI. And you can do that sometimes, but you can't do that on when you're talking about matters of national security, I think. Yeah, I mean, two other things. He didn't just lie to his attorney. On other occasions, he asked his attorney to obstruct justice. He said, like, well, wouldn't it be better if there was no secret information? If there were no here? documents, wouldn't right? it be better yeah. if there were no documents? Can't you make this go away, in effect? And the second thing is, like, I'm okay with that distinction you just drew between... I was the president. I took some documents I wasn't supposed to take, but oh, I realize now you want them back. Here they are. And I'm okay with that because, you know, we're learning in the process of all of this and in the process of the investigations into Biden's retention of documents and Mike Pence's had a couple things he wasn't supposed to have. I don't think it's totally obvious what you're supposed to leave or take. And these are highly trusted public officials while they're in office. I think it's fine for the government to not bring criminal charges if you took some things you weren't supposed to have, but you give them back when you're asked. And it's the flagrant flouting of that part of the law and that part of our understanding of the role of a former president that's so remarkable here. Whoa. More breaking news, GapFest listeners. John Dickerson is actually able to join us. John just got off the air uh, at at CBS, and he is now here with us. So I lied earlier. We do have John. John, you've been marinating this since it happened last night. Um, What do you make of the indictment now that you've had a chance to read it? Well, I'm glad that I've had a chance to read it because it's so irritating in these moments where um, people rush in and make claims for an indictment and you, uh, and you don't have the facts of the case. So now we have an indictment. What strikes me is that there is a central actor at the center of the stage um, with at least five instances of obstruction, and that central actor is Donald Trump. And this is not an instance in which, you know, uh, a few pages with uh, overclassification wandered into the memorabilia of the White House. This is... Um, an orchestrated attempt by the president, former president, at at regular turns to keep this information one step ahead of the people who 
were looking for it. And that undermines his larger claim among the ones he makes uh, that he had some broad declassification power and that he had a right to have this. He knew he had no right to have it. And the indictment also outlines the way in which he used the information. This is incredibly sensitive material that, as Jack Smith pointed out in his very brief press conference, uh, is the most sensitive information that that is a part of national security. And then, you know, at the furthest extreme of the idea could get people killed. And what was the former president using that information for? His own personal whims. So it's not just that he was uh, that he that, that this important and sensitive information was loose and flitting about Mar-a-Lago, but also that he was putting it to the wrong use, which is part of his broader view of the presidency, which was a gift that was given to him, and that he should use its uh, elements like something in the gift basket, and that's what's outlined in uh, in the indictment. And so that's what struck me the most, and also the detail. Uh, of the indictment, um, which includes these, you know, specific instances backed up by contemporaneous audio recordings and texts of the president saying, you know, well, let's let's just tell him we don't have any files, or um, uh, basically instructing his his uh, lawyers to lie uh, in response to the subpoena. What do you guys make of the Republican response? There was a prebuttal that happened where there was a, a significant Republican response from people who are kind of Trump allies within the party, uh, people, or certainly people who don't want to offend Trump voters, who said, oh, this is weaponization of government. This is uh, you know, prosecutorial overreach. This is a political vendetta. That was before the indictment comes out. Do you think there will be any um, reconsideration of it from any parts of the Republican Party now that there are specific chapters and verse here? Or is this just, this is, going to be a political football and and Republicans just simply will not be able to acknowledge that there's a legitimacy to this prosecution? I'm feeling like it's the latter. Um, I mean, some people, you know, Mitt Romney and the, and the usual um, people who try to adhere to a set of standards and norms have said, this is a reason for him to stop his campaign. And it's, he brought this on himself and he behaved, uh, you know, wrongly in a multiple different instances. I don't know, even though the the, the evidence is pretty, um, pretty powerful. And uh, the fact that Jack Smith said so little at his press conference suggests that the indictment will do the talking for him. You know, sometimes they say the more you talk, the less you say. Well, when you say so little, maybe it means because you, you've said a lot in your indictment. I don't see how they can get around. Well, we've said that before. We've said that before. We've said that before. I know. I know. <laughs> exactly. And also, that's in, pa- that's in fact, as we've also said before, that's in fact why it's so hard to condemn something. Because the thing you end up condemning, and this is something the candidates running against former President Trump are wrestling with in the campaigns, is if you say that he has fatal flaws of character... Uh, then the question is, well, when did you notice those fatal flaws of character and why are you only speaking up now? So the things that you might condemn him for in this indictment would be of a piece of behavior that goes you know, back to the Mueller report. The Mueller report charged Trump with obstruction. It said it didn't charge him formally, but it, it said that uh, he had not been uh, exculpated of obstruction and that it was a, a decision that was based on, I think, and Emily, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Mueller's reading of whether you could go after an actual sitting president. But my point is that obstruction has been in his uh, toolkit for for a long time. Uh, So if you don't like it in this case, why didn't you like it in the previous ones is one of the things that would hang up anybody who would try to get off the 
the train at this moment. So this is the case of the many potential prosecutions of Donald Trump that lawyers like the best, right? It's very clear. It seems buttoned up. They have a lot of evidence. They laid it out clearly. Um, There are charges that seem to very neatly apply. And also bonus points for getting the indictment sealed today rather than having days of an asymmetrical PR war in which Trump and his allies and all the Republicans are saying all kinds of things and there are no specific facts for the government to counter with. All of that said, it makes me think that maybe the Republicans are committing a political error here. I mean, can anyone look at their statements with a straight face and imagine that if the shoe were on the other foot and this was a Democratic former president being charged, that they would not be outraged? I mean, I would like to think that Democrats, if this was a Democratic president, would be saying that this behavior is clearly, clearly unacceptable, just like Mitt Romney is saying. To just possibly ruin your very good point with with just a little more detail, um, I mean, think about one of the major issues that helped Donald Trump become president. It was his suggestion uh, that Hillary Clinton's mismanagement of classified records was such a, a fatal flaw that she shouldn't uh, be voted into the presidency. And the number one thing, or in the top three, anything anyway, things chanted at his rallies was lock her up because of her supposed mishandling of classified material. So, I mean, I guess the only other way it would be more of a comeback around would be if it was if it turned out that Donald Trump was actually not born in the United States. Yeah, I mean, but <laughs> but gosh, he's so far by far the front runner. Like everyone knows these terrible facts about him. I mean, maybe there maybe there are still voters on the margins who now that he's been shown or possibly will be shown to have be be a federal criminal uh, who mishandles classified information, that'll be finally people will be like, all right, well, now I can't vote for him. Now I can, now, okay, fine, sure, I won't vote for him now. I mean, it just feels like, obviously, he should be charged if he committed these crimes, or if they believe he committed these crimes, he should be charged, he should be put on trial. Just, I, I find it so hard to imagine this disrupting in any significant way the political dynamic in this country. That's what's demoralizing. Well, so, okay, but I still feel like it's important to acknowledge there's this other layer of other Republicans jumping out in front to defend him, right? Maybe the Republican primary electorate is totally unmovable, but I don't think that that can let off the hook all these public officials who are racing. And I know you're not saying that. I just feel like it's really important to just like think about this for a minute. (laughs) That's definitely right. I mean, um, I think the only other thing I would add, David, and I don't know that this is, but you could imagine this playing a similar role, actually, though the facts of the case are obviously wildly and vastly different. But one of the things analysts said about Hillary Clinton when Comey came forward at the end of the campaign and said he found more emails is people said at the time, and it seemed to make some sense, in fact, maybe one of the two of you had said it, is that whether people had a feeling one way or the other about her handling of emails, it reminded them that the Clinton years had been years of yes. kind of fuss yes. and bother. And yes. and like, ugh, this again. Yes. Well, yes. I wonder if a similar thing could happen in the Trump. And the, the benefit of that is embedded in it is a, to use a 10 cent phrase, a permission structure that allows you to say, you know, I didn't really forgive him uh, any bad sins, so I'm not a bad person. But... I just, I don't know, there's so much bother associated with them. Maybe we should just turn the page. So you can get to turning the page without having to think badly about yourself. 
That's abs- that's a really great point, John. And I do. I was as I was kind of waking up this morning. I was like, I'm waking up to the nightmare I woke up to for so many years. If you think that Trump arrived as a political figure on the scene in 2015, and and until you know the until late uh, January of 2021, he was the central narrator actor figure in every single thing that happened in American politics. And then there was this, there was this brief reprieve from it in the sense like, okay, well, there's some kind of normalcy. The Republican party can move on. And the fact that they haven't moved on has been so depressing and that it's returning so hard. And I hope what you're saying is right, John, I hope what you're saying is correct, that there are, that there is at least a pool of people who are just like, I don't want the Michigas. I'm not going to go vote for Biden. I can't stand Kamala. But I'm not going to return to this craziness. That would be great. I mean, also, look, this is a federal indictment. It lays out criminal charges. It's very detailed about a series of moves that Trump and his valet made that were clear. I mean, there's just no way to read it and not thinking think that that Trump was deliberately trying to conceal this information he shouldn't have taken with him. He knew he didn't have the power to declassify. He knew it had potent secrets and he didn't give it back when they asked over and over again. Like that is not hard to understand. You, Emily, do you think that Trump's lawyer that uh Evan Corcoran, do you think he went to the prosecutors and was like, please, please pierce the attorney-client privilege. Do you think he was just like, this guy's committing crimes. He's trying to dragoon me into his crimes. Please. No, No, I don't think so, because that would be a really bizarre thing for a lawyer to do, because lawyers are supposed to put their clients' interests first, unless we are in the land of what's called the crime fraud exception in which a client is trying to use the lawyer to commit a crime or to commit fraud. Well, that's fraud. what Trump is accused yeah, of doing. Yeah, but you have to still, it's so ingrained in lawyers that deeply that they are supposed to keep client communications privileged and confidential. I can't imagine that Corcoran like waved his hands up and down for the Justice Department. I think the prosecutors came after him. And then once the judge ruled, like, yeah, you can pierce the attorney-client privilege here, then he turned over what he had. Although notwithstanding what you just said, I, I felt like the voice notes he was taking for himself, maybe <laughs> yeah. this is an insurance policy, but I mean, I, I feel like if you work for the former president, you're taking a lot of contemporaneous notes and voice notes and maybe even recordings because you kind of think maybe someday it might turn around on you. Oh, absolutely. That part, I think the insurance policy aspect and maybe some inkling that you're kind of recording this craziness for history. Sure. I'm just quarreling with the idea that Corcoran would have volunteered the information. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that it was incredibly damning that he took those voice memos. And if you're truly like, the lawyer for someone who, you know, the classic mafia lawyer does not take detailed voice memos. That's not how you do it on Better Call Saul. Well, if he does it, he does it once. (laughs) (laughs) And never more. Before we go, actually, before we go to our quick second topic, I should say, what is the likely schedule of legal events now that there's an indictment? Oh, man, I don't know, except that Trump is um, turning himself in or whatever they work out on Tuesday, surrendering. But we should talk about Judge Cannon. I mean, this case got assigned to one out of the 15 judges in this federal district in Florida. And 
Judge Cannon drew the straw, and she is the same judge that gave these incredibly favorable rulings to Trump when the government was first trying to investigate, rulings that got overturned by the appeals court that just seemed honestly kind of bananas in terms of her read on the law. She is a Trump appointee. It's going to be really interesting to see if the knockback she got from the appeals court makes her more cautious this time. Is a trial likely to happen before the election if there's going to be a trial? I can't really imagine that because you can just drag these proceedings out for such a long time and they're going to file, you know, Trump's lawyers, whoever's left, right? We should also note that a couple of his lawyers um, quit today, Friday. Or we're we're encouraged to quit. (laughs) Have have exited the scene, have tiptoed off into the distance. I wonder if they got paid or not. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like whoever's representing Trump will throw every single, what's the metaphor, throw every snowball you can possibly throw into this case. And that it's going to be important for the courts to show that they're taking all those claims seriously and considering them. And I don't know if this case is going to stay with Judge Cannon or not, but whoever is holding on to it is going to have to be a model of judicial rigor. And so I would just assume that they'll be able to stall it out. But I don't know. It's pretty far away the 2024 election. So we'll see. Oh my God. It's far away. Why can't it be tomorrow? (laughs) There's a year and a half of this left. Good Lord. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Emily, let's do a twofer. Why don't we do a twofer? Let's do a second topic here. You're our Supreme Court expert. And of course, also after we taped yesterday, there was a huge Supreme Court decision in the Alabama Voting Rights Act case. Uh, What did you make of the fact that Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh joined with the liberals to rule that an Alabama redistricting map was uh, discriminating against black voters? 
Well, I was just as surprised as everyone else. I did not predict this at all. I do think that Chief Justice Roberts is amazing at pulling out of his back pocket some result in every term that makes it seem like the court remains even-handed. And Milligan, Allen versus Milligan, this case looks like the candidate for this particular term. I was also really struck by um, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence because he just really clearly laid out what he thought the court was doing. So first, he starts off with this famous precedent about um, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and explains why the court should hang on to it so that essentially this part of the Voting Rights Act is going to live to see another day. And what it means, practically speaking, is that states are going to have to continue to be careful when they draw maps that they're not racially gerrymandering. It looked like maybe the court was just going to kind of get out of the business of policing racial gerrymandering absent evidence of intent to racially discriminate, but they're not. And what's interesting is that the reason they're not, or a major reason, is that they tried to have an intent test years ago. And then in 1982, Congress amended the Voting Rights Act, and they actually rejected that intent test. And so what you have here is like a real dialogue back and forth between the branches of government, and the court is continuing to respect that. What this decision does not do, though, Emily Wright, is it, it, it's not a it's not a rebuke to gerrymandering broadly. I mean, I think we have lots of gerrymandering gerrymandering problems in this country. Well, we have a problem that a lots of people have sorted themselves so they have chosen to live in different areas. But this does not solve the problem of this partisan gerrymandering that is going on in wild ways in in state legislatures, particularly, but in purplish states in Wisconsin and North Carolina, uh, Pennsylvania, where we've seen that as a, as a real heavy handed tool to, to entrench minority power for a, or to entrench power for a party that may have only a bare actual majority or maybe no majority at all. Right. So this is only applies in the context of a claim of gerrymandering on the basis of race, not partisanship. And that's because the Voting Rights Act only addresses racial gerrymandering. So the court has a statute here. It's interpreting. It was interesting, though, they did a lot of, well, they didn't do a lot of math, but they talked about statistical analysis in this opinion and addressed the fact that, you know, obviously now when people are drawing new districting maps, they use millions of computer simulations are possible, right? You can configure the map any which way. You can throw the voters all over the place. And so the court is grappling with how you decide whether a state has crossed the line into an impermissible racial gerrymandering when there are so many possibilities on the table. And I kind of think that <laughs> in acknowledging that there are all these possibilities, but as long as you have some possibilities that allow for preserving the power of a racial minority while also doing things like keeping a city or a township together, what's called a community of interest, by acknowledging that balancing, there is a, an avenue toward addressing political gerrymandering here because it's the same problem. But in previous political gerrymandering decisions, the court acted like that was an impossibility. And so that will remain the law. That's our special edition. It feels like if we if we do a special edition every time Trump is indicted, we could be doing, we, maybe we should just have a whole special edition edition because they're going to be, he could be indicted at least twice more in the next couple of months. It's really oh my cool. gosh, it's true. I was, I thought you were kidding. And then I realized actually you're not, that's not, not kidding. It's incredibly plausible. 
<laughs> Not kidding. Mark Meadows and others who are, you know, who have testified in the documents case are key players with respect to January 6th as well. So, you know, that and then, of course, Fulton County is the other thing you're you're thinking about. Can I ask you guys one more question? Does anyone want to pour one out for Walt Nauda, the valet in this position? I mean, he lied to the FBI. That's not great. He's being charged with making his own false statements. Do you feel sorry for him? I it's a really good point. I think that poor Walt, you can imagine people saying, you know, this is the cost. Basically, this one poor guy who's having to pay for Donald Trump's behavior. I wonder if that changes the way this cuts for people. But yeah, poor guy. And I, I, I wasn't quite sure whether he whether that was basically a part of the process of, of Trump basically hiding the documents from his own lawyers. But I, I haven't quite figured that out yet, or if it's proved in the indictment. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether I feel sorry for him yet, because we don't know quite enough. But I mean, going to work for President Trump, it, it's a long time we've known the character of this man, a long time we've known who this person is. And to make that choice to work with someone who is of such low character is a, is a choice. And I don't know. I mean, he, he Walt Nauta may be a, a wonderful person and, and he may help every like damaged frog get across the highway and, and uh, you know, have, have a home for widows and orphans um, out back. But you work with Trump at your peril. And, and we all know that. That's our special edition for today. It was produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. We will be back with a regular episode. Unless Trump is indicted again next week. Who knows? Maybe we'll be back Monday. Maybe over the weekend. But otherwise, till then, I'm David Plotz for John Dickerson and Emily Gazelon. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.